the History Channel original podcast. Sports history this week, August 2nd, 1921. I'm Kalen Jones. Hundreds of spectators fill a courtroom in Chicago, Illinois. It's 90 degrees. The men wear sports jackets, fanning themselves with straw hats. The discomfort is worth it. After all, the trial of the century is underway. Seven Chicago White Sox players are accused of intentionally throwing the 1919 World Series, that they conspired with gamblers to get paid if they threw the games. For that reason, they've been dubbed the Black Sox. The case feels open and shut. Two gamblers in on the fix have already recounted how it all went down in front of a jury. Not to mention, several of the players have already gone on the record confessing. This isn't the first time there have been rumors of a baseball game being thrown. In fact, gambling, which at this point is still illegal in the United States, has been a years-long blight on the sport. But up until now, owners have brushed it under the rug. This time, the fix is too big to ignore. Baseball fans nationwide feel betrayed. After weeks of testimony, the closing arguments are wrapping up. Just before 8 p.m., the jury retires to deliberate. Two hours and 47 minutes later, Clerk Edward Myers stands and reads out the verdicts. The 1919 Chicago Black Sox scandal. Gambling and game fixing have the potential to poison baseball's integrity if it's allowed to go on. Will the punishment be enough to root it out forever? And will these White Sox players, some of them the best in the world, have a chance to return the glory? Or will their careers be over? When you look at baseball history, there is before the Black Sox scandal and there is after the Black Sox scandal. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 1919, baseball is the biggest spectator sport in America, the national pastime. There's no NFL or NBA quite yet. Hockey was something that they played on frozen lakes in Canada. That's Charles Fountain, author of The Betrayal, a book on the Black Sox scandal. Baseball is the main distraction in this era. During its offseason, perhaps you could enjoy horse racing or boxing. But baseball is king. 
At this time, the sport itself is different. There are only 16 teams, not 30. It isn't ruled by a single commissioner. There's actually a three-person group that oversees everything. And so under this commission, what kind of rights did the players themselves have? Oh, none at all. If you're going to be a great baseball player, the early 20th century is not the best time for it. You're pretty much bound to your team for life. Plus, unlike today, there's no free agency. No way for players to command money on the open market. They had no options whatsoever. In this era of baseball, the Chicago White Sox are a marquee franchise and one of the most successful, too, winning the World Series in 1906 and again in 1917. Coming into 1919, they are far and away the favorite to take the cake once again. The team's success is largely thanks to owner Charles Comiskey. Who was he and what was he like and how was he perceived by the public at the time? He was probably the best-known owner in baseball. Comiskey is funny, gregarious, and beloved by players and reporters alike. Reporters especially. They had a really sweet deal going. They got to go to a ball game every day, uh, and they got to travel first class on the road. And that was a lot better than, uh, you know, their colleagues in the newsroom that are covering courts and fires. Comiskey and the White Sox put together a championship team, partially because they know how to scout prospects. And they also trade well. You had a solid top-to-bottom starting rotation. You had all-stars or Hall of Famers at every position around the field. As the 1919 season unfolds, the Chicago White Sox prove themselves to be the best team in baseball. It's no problem packing Comiskey Park, their home stadium. Often among the crowd, gamblers. Baseball and gambling, a match made in heaven. The Chicago White Sox grew up as part of this culture where, where gambling was just part of the game. That is Jacob Pomeranke, the chair of the Black Sox Research Committee for the Society of American Baseball Research. A lot of them would make some extra money. They hit a home run, they would win some extra money. And so this was just a part of the game. Gambling men fill the stands calling for bets. Anyone want to bet the next hit will be a homer? And it isn't just a couple bad apples. Gambling is a part of baseball. Players were involved, executives were involved, fans were involved. Remember, these players have very few rights. No players union, no opportunity to jump to another team for more money. So gambling is a way to make some extra cash. Players might feed inside information to make a dime or even play worse on purpose. Hall of Fame pitcher Rube Waddell even missed an entire World Series due to a suspicious late-season injury. Rumors of game-fixing go all the way back to Civil War times. Despite there being countless similar cases, there are rarely consequences. There had been a couple of moments where the crimes were so egregious that they came to the public consciousness. Players were suspended and the whole thing sort of quieted down for a while. But it was always sort of there. No one wants to be responsible for bringing attention to it. If you're an owner, it could hurt your business if fans find out your player was working with gamblers. And if you're a reporter, you don't want to get sued for libel. 
So gambling and baseball continue to profit off each other. It's late September 1919 in Boston. The air is brisk, down into the 50s. The White Sox are here to play one of their last regular season games. The team have been the early season favorites in the American League. And true to their talent, they lead the league and are on pace to take the pennant. After the regular season ends, they're headed to Ohio for the World Series against the National League champion, Cincinnati Reds. The Reds are still viewed as David in a battle against Goliath. The White Sox have been helped by their shutout pitcher, Eddie Seacott. In 1919, he leads the league with 28 wins. Shoeless Joe Jackson ends the year with a 351 batting average, fourth best in the league behind the Tigers' Ty Cobb at number one. First baseman Chick Gandle has also been key to their success, posting a 290 batting average while driving in 60 runs. In Boston, Gandel is walking outside of Fenway Park to a hotel. He's on his way to meet an old friend. Gandel is a tough guy with a thick brow, big forehead, and protruding ears. He arrives at the Hotel Buckminster, a red and white brick building. It looks more like a cruise ship than a hotel. He's meeting up with Joseph Sport Sullivan, but not for some regular catch-up. They're here to begin talks to fix the biggest sports event in the entire nation, promising a healthy payout for them both. Sullivan says he can get the money. Gandel says he can deliver the players. Of course, the World Series is a big deal today, but back then, it was even bigger. The World Series sort of uh, paused America at that moment, that uh, whatever your favorite team was, the World Series was something that, you know, America stopped to pause and pay attention to. Nobody knows exactly how the fix came together after this point, but this is the most popular theory. It could have also been a New York meeting at the Hotel Insonia with two White Sox players in Chick Gandel and Eddie Seacott, along with the go-between. Or Chick Gandel approached Eddie Seacott to ask what it would take to get him in on the fix. The goal is clear, though. Make extra money. What's not clear? Who's the main financial backer for the fix, given the Sox players met with go-betweens like Sports Sullivan and Billy Maharg? The most likely money man, though, is Arnold Rothstein. He was the closest thing we had to a celebrity gangster in 1919. The Brain. Mr. Big, the fixer. Arnold Rothstein. At 37, he's made a name for himself as a crime boss. He's known for transforming organized crime from small-time thugging into a corporation. The money that he won on the World Series and the money he spent in uh, helping to fix the World Series was barely a bubble in, uh, you know, his pot of money. It was said that he walked around New York carrying $100,000 in cash on him. In truth, he fixed the World Series with the $80,000 he paid to the players and the lesser gamblers. He fixed the World Series. He generated the biggest scandal in the history of American sport with what he had on him. That's ridiculous, <laughs> especially when you compare like $80,000 or 
you know, walking around with that much money, you know, in comparison to now. With Rothstein's backing, eight White Sox players are ready to attempt to throw the series. They're promised anywhere between $5,000 and $50,000 per player. The fix is on. The series draws closer and rumors run rampant that something might be up. But no one ever steps in. Newspapers tread very lightly on this story. It's nearly 90 degrees and humid at Redland Field, the Cincinnati Reds' home stadium. 30,000 fans are in attendance. The men are well-dressed in suits and fedoras. Women wear long dresses and wide-brimmed sun hats. There's red, white, and blue bunting draped across the stands. The White Sox have good odds to win the game, but before it starts, gamblers are throwing money behind the Reds. The game begins with Eddie Seacott on the mound. On his second pitch, Seacott nails the batter right in the middle of his back. Red's second baseman, Morris Rath, walks the first base. To onlookers who already think something is off, this play is a clear indication. There's a fix underway. Soon, Rath makes it around the diamond to home plate thanks to a sacrifice fly. One nothing Reds. But the White Sox tie it back up as Chip Gandle hits a single to bring Joe Jackson home. These are two players supposedly in on the fix, so it's strange that they're playing well. Seacott returns to form in the second inning, retiring every hitter. But to lead off the third, he walks pitcher Dutch Ruther. During the 1919 season, Seacott averages a league-best 1.4 walks per game. By the third inning of this game alone, he's on pace to walk nine. Seacott did not look good. He was hit hard. That uh, the Chicago hitters did uh, not look good. The game reflected that the White Sox did not look good. In the fourth inning, Seacott's actions look even more suspicious. He has the chance to record two outs on a double play, but hesitates to throw the ball to shortstop Swede Risberg. And by the time he does throw it, the opportunity has disappeared. Soon enough, Seacott has given up six runs. By game's end, the score is 9-1 Reds. There's still no whisper of a potential fix in the media. Journalists write that the White Sox look sluggish in the heat and that the Reds have pulled off a big upset. After the loss, the payouts are supposed to come. Players are owed $20,000 to be split among them. Arnold Rothstein's people shrug off the request. Some of the players think they might have gotten played. Game two isn't going much better than game one for the Chicago White Sox. In just the fourth inning, starting pitcher Lefty Williams walks three batters. Then he gives up a triple to red shortstop Larry Kopp. It doesn't make sense. Williams is known as a consistent winner with great command of the ball. But the White Sox lose 4-2. By now, 
White Sox owner Charles Comiskey is aware of the fix rumors, but he doesn't act. After game two, the players are owed $40,000. Once again, a go-between tries to collect from Rothstein's guys. The team is on a train back to Chicago from Cincinnati. Sleepy Bill Burns approaches Rothstein's gambling men, who are surrounded by cash. Burns scores $10,000, but they're owed $40,000. That would be the last payout White Sox players would see. And the fix comes to a close. Once again, accounts differ as the win players decide to play in earnest, likely after game two or three. Soon, the White Sox start winning. By the eighth game of the series, they have fought back, cutting the Red series lead to four games to three. Now, they're only one game behind. On October 8th, 1919, star pitcher Lefty Williams is back at the mound but he quickly gives up four runs in just the first inning. The Reds are dominant, plating six more runs during the contest. The game ends 10-5. The Cincinnati Reds have won the 1919 World Series. The White Sox players in on the fix actually played good baseball, but over the course of the series, They had committed nine of the team's 12 errors, contributing to the defeat, whether they meant to or not. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In the wake of the Reds-White Sox World Series, the Chicago press does not seem suspicious of anything. Even if reporters do have questions, editors are too afraid to print what amounted to hearsay. Instead, peepers are over the moon for the Cincinnati Reds. All hail Cincinnati, the new world champions, would have been the headline in every newspaper. There is one article, though, that stands out from the rest. Veteran baseball writer Hugh Fullerton raises suspicions of the integrity of the World Series in a column titled, Is Big League Baseball Being Run for Gamblers with Players in the Deal? It's the first black cloud in an approaching storm. Hugh Fullerton was one of the earliest voices to really come out against that and say, you know, this could become big trouble. 
While he doesn't explicitly say there's a fix in his column, he implies it. Strangely, there was no outrage toward the players or the White Sox, but at Fullerton himself. Publications like Sporting News and Baseball Magazine argue Fullerton is far worse for the game of baseball than what the writer is alleging. But he's on a mission. Fullerton wants gambling out of the game. He tried, mostly behind the scenes, to raise the red flag and say, you know, this something's going on and, and this is going to harm baseball. The fall classic has come and gone. It feels like the sky is clearing. Perhaps the World Series really is in the rearview mirror. The Yankees acquire Babe Ruth, captivating the baseball world. By August of the 1920 season, the White Sox are once again contenders for the American League. But soon, the team's past comes back to haunt them. It's the early afternoon on August 31st, 1920, as two losing teams prepare for a meaningless midweek contest, the Phillies versus the Cubs. Before the game, Cubs president William Beck is accosted by telegrams and telephone calls. He gets a warning. The Cubs may be throwing the game. Beck is shaken. He seeks the help of private investigators, but can't turn up anything. He turns next to journalists. The writers publicly suggest it may be a better task for the Cook County Grand Jury in Chicago. The man overseeing that particular grand jury has aspirations to make it in the baseball world, Charles McDonald. So he takes up the case. Now that a grand jury is investigating gambling in baseball, the press wonders again why it shouldn't look into the 1919 World Series. McDonald expands the inquiry. Soon enough, the White Sox dirty laundry would be aired in front of a salivating national audience. Maybe 5% of the story came out in the 10 months between the start of the World Series and that, you know, Chicago Grand Jury headline about the the Cubs-Phillies game. And then the other 95% came out within a month. It's September 1920 inside the Cook County Courthouse, located in Chicago. In the early days of the grand jury hearing, there's no way to officially prove that White Sox players had thrown the games. The prosecution needs someone on the inside to confirm their suspicions. And of course, lightning strikes again. Someone involved squarely in the plot decides to go public, Billy Maharg. He was a former boxer, former baseball player, and Billy Maharg kind of spilled the beans uh, to this newspaper reporter in Philadelphia. Maharg had served as a go-between for the players and the big money guys, much like Joseph Sport Sullivan. He gives an interview first published in the Philadelphia North American that gets shared nationally. And said, yes, we did fix the World Series. We had eight players for the Chicago White Sox in the back. Um, you know, all the rumors are true. And this was the first time that the story had been confirmed by someone on the inside. Within 24 hours, four players confessed and eight are indicted. All implicated are suspended from the team. Do you, we know how things looked or sounded 
in the courtroom at the time? Was it busy? Was it empty? Were people at the watch? It was like Johnny Depp and, uh, you know, the libel trial that we just sat through. Shoeless Joe Jackson gives his testimony soon after Mahari's bombshell article. He tells the grand jury Chick Gandel promised him $20,000 to participate in the scheme, and he said he would. He also testifies that he only received $5,000 and twice asked Gandel where the rest of it was. As the trial unfolds, the 1919 White Sox get a new name. The Black Sox. A universal national sense of betrayal that ran from the top of baseball power structure down through every fan and even people who are not fans who are horrified and felt, you know, how could people do this? It's August 2nd, 1921. There are hundreds of expected onlookers and reporters at the Cook County Courthouse. It's brutally hot. And then, of course, you've got all the hot air coming out of the lawyers' mouths. Today, the verdict that will decide the fates of seven White Sox players and four gamblers is being handed down. While it may have been clear to the whole nation that the 1919 World Series was fixed, the case against the players has not been so cut and dry. For one, it turns out fixing the game in itself is not technically a crime. The prosecutors had to prove not that, uh, you know, the players fixed the game, which was it would have been impossible to prove anyway, but in, in fixing the game, they did it because they wanted to injure the business of their boss. Plus, evidence has been stolen. Indictments were dismissed and reinstated. A whole new team has had to take over the case, still needing to find first-hand witnesses to explain the fix. Things have not gone smoothly. Back to August 2nd, the last day of the trial. At 3 o'clock, the closing arguments conclude. A short recess. The jury begins to deliberate behind closed doors. Nearly three hours later... It's now past 11 p.m. Hundreds are still in the courthouse waiting to hear the verdict. Clerk Edward Myers stands up and reads one verdict after another. And for each... We find the defendant... Not guilty. (laughs) Newspapers and hats are thrown into the air. Someone shouts, hooray for the clean socks. Even the judge smiles wide. He thanks the jury and says he believes they made the right call. Given the players confessed to throwing the World Series, it's hard to imagine a not guilty verdict. Jacob Pomeranke says the jury may have disregarded the law. There's no question that they took the bribe money. There's no question that they entered into a conspiracy to fix the World Series. The prosecutors made that case for most of the players. But sometimes juries do what juries do. Nearly two years from the 1919 World Series, the players would not face any legal consequences. Their luck will soon run out thanks to a new man in charge of baseball. The federal judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. 
A serious man described as having the face of Andrew Jackson three years dead. In November of 1920, just a month after Billy Mahar's bombshell account of the fix, Landis is anointed by the owners as its first sole commissioner. He's kept quiet about the Black Sox scandal up to this point, but given the player's legal innocence, Landis decides to act. As August 3rd rolls around, the Black Sox players are likely nursing a hangover, having celebrated their acquittal. That's when the commissioner's verdict is handed down. No player who conspires to throw a ball game or sits in conversations where the ways and means of throwing a game are discussed and does not report it will ever play baseball again. And that simple statement ended the careers forever. The Black Sox players are permanently banned from professional baseball. Landis' first major act as a commissioner sends a message to the entire league. In regards to gambling, things aren't going to be the same. Nothing had ever happened to any player. Hey, look, if we get caught, what's the worst thing that happens? We get fined, we get traded. Uh, It's not like we're going to get thrown out of the game because nobody's ever been thrown out of the game. Certainly nobody like Joe Jackson's ever been thrown out of the game. Baseball would change forever. There's some that say that Landis and or Babe Ruth were the saviors of baseball after 1919. Landis' decision seemingly restores integrity to baseball. You know, if they could have swept it under the rug forever, I think they would have. But this decision is the culmination of decades of corruption and greed. Players are finally scared out of making that easy extra buck. In a way, the Black Sox scandal was instrumental in ridding baseball of the type of behavior that caused the scandal in the first place. But the careers of the Black Sox players are cut short. It's a big loss to the world of baseball too, who would miss out on the potential Hall of Fame futures of Eddie Seacott and Joe Jackson. The White Sox franchise would also take a hit. The team becomes associated with the scandal for decades to come. Over a hundred years after the fact, the story of the Black Sox scandal has shown a unique sticking power. Perhaps because it involved the biggest stars of the day, or because it changed the outcome of the biggest championship in sports at the time. It's a story of betrayal, it's a story of injustice, it's a story of corruption. You know, all these human, universal human elements. It helps inform how sports, and Major League Baseball particularly, should approach modern scandals as well. Moments like the use of performance-enhancing drugs or the Astros' sign-stealing scandal. Though, none have quite measured up to the Black Sox. And folks like Jacob Pomeranke continue to unearth new documents in hopes of adding new pieces to this massive puzzle. As we like to say, the Black Sox scandal is a cold case, not a closed case. Pomeranke's research committee is still finding new player interviews and unearthing information from old newspapers that have been newly digitized, as well as discovering courthouse records, salary, and contract info. Slowly, over time, the gaps will fill in. But the entire true story of what happened in 1919 may never be fully known. 
Many parts of it are still a mystery, what did happen, and we're never going to figure it out. So every new bit of concrete information sort of allows us to examine everything that we know in a fresh light. The passage of time allows us to judge some people more kindly and other people more harshly, perhaps, than we did. Uh, that's the evolution of history as well. And the events and the facts don't change, but the understanding and the appreciation and the meaning of them does. So I think this is going to be professional sports, eternal scandal, eternal mystery, and because of that, eternal fascination. Wow, that's a perfect way to end it. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, sportspod at history.com. We love to hear from our fans. And non-fans, too. That get lost. Special thanks to our guests, Jacob Pomeranke and Charles Fountain. This episode was produced by Cooper McKim, Story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by Bill Moss. Sports History This Week is also produced by David Ingber. Our senior producer is Ben Dixon. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.